You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right, if you have a Bible with you, feel free to open to chapter six, John chapter 16, where we're going to be today. I'm sorry, I just got to move this spider that children's ministry left in here, or it's going to bug me the whole service. Uh, I love that we have a multi-purpose church and that our kids are in here during the 9.30 service, but you never know what you're going to find up here at 11. All right, well, we're going to start uh, here in John 16, where we're actually finishing a series this Sunday called Now What? Looking at the farewell discourse at Jesus' last sort of extended message to his disciples. It's been from John 14 to 16. And if this is your first Sunday here, you're going to kind of get a summary of, of what we've been covering over these last few weeks Because Jesus is going to really summarize what he wants for his disciples, what he wants for you. And I love that phrase, what Jesus wants for us. Because a lot of times we'll talk about what God wants from us, which is appropriate and fitting as his creatures. We we owe God things, and so it's fitting to talk about what he wants from us. But I want to talk today about what Jesus wants for you and what he offers for you. And that phrase, what God wants for us, is a really rich phrase of, of what would it mean if someone said, someone that you really love and respect said, what I want for you is, imagine that you're at the, at the bedside of a parent right before they're passing away and they say, hey, I really want you to know that what I want for you is, wouldn't you lean in? You'd want to hear what they had to say. Or if it was your, your wedding day, and I, I see three engaged couples here, so maybe this is coming soon for some of you, and your best friend was giving a toast and they said, what I really want for you is, You'd lean in and you really cherish those words. Or maybe a mentor, you know, you're going to a new job or a new promotion, and your mentor says, hey, before you leave, what I really want for you is. And if the person was wise, and the person knew you and cared about you, you'd really cherish hearing what they want for you. Well, this is what Jesus wants for you in these few verses. What he wants for you with relation to God, and what he wants for you to, for you to understand about yourself, and and in that process of self-understanding, change how, how we understand our relationship to God. So let's, let's jump into verse 25, and we'll see what, what Jesus is saying here. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, or different translations might say, I've said these things to you in parables or metaphors. ESV goes with figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. This has been the theme really throughout this series that, that Jesus has talked to them about what, what he wants for them, what he wants for them in relation to God. And he's used a lot of metaphors to describe it. You might remember in chapter 14, Jesus described how he has come so that we might uh, go with him to the house with many rooms, right? Probably they are speaking metaphorically. Or in chapter 15, where he described himself as the vine and that we're the branches, again, using a metaphor. If you go back earlier in the Gospel of John, you see a lot more metaphors where he describes himself as the bread of life or the light of the world, how we need to be born again. These are all metaphors or figures of speech that Jesus uses to describe sacred and spiritual realities. And he says an hour is coming when he's no longer going to use metaphors, but he's going to speak plainly to them. Now, this doesn't mean the metaphors are bad. All those things I mentioned are really important for us and helpful. I mean, for me, at least personally, those metaphors are really memorable to understanding what it means to relate to God. But he says there's going to be a time coming when I'm going to stop talking this way and I'm going to speak plainly. Now, just a chronology here real quick. We're on the night before Jesus is betrayed. He spent three years with the disciples, rounding off. This is, you know, 
out of, out of maybe an 1,100-day time that he spent with the disciples, this is day 1,099. Interesting time to change your teaching strategy, Jesus. Uh, wh- what's he talking about? When does this happen? Like, he only has a few more hours. There's nothing else in John that talks about this other time. What does he mean to say that there's going to be a time when he's going to change how he's going to talk to them? Some people think it's, he's talking about after his resurrection. Like, if you know the Gospels, you know, at the end of Luke, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he sees the two disciples, and he explains all, how all the scriptures pointed to him. Some people think he's just talking about that, but I think if you look at the Gospel of John, you see John 16 is all about how the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and how Jesus is sending another comforter to speak to us. I think what Jesus is saying here is a day is coming when the Spirit will tell us plainly what Jesus has explained in figures of speech. I don't mean that in some sort of cryptic way. I mean that the Spirit testifies with your spirit in language of Galatians 4 that you are a child of God. And as we see in the whole rest of the New Testament, the Spirit inspires Paul and Peter and James and John and whoever wrote Hebrews to, to speak plainly the things of God. Every once in a while, I'll have a friend or a Christian I'll hear say, you know, I'm a red-letter Christian, referring to the parts of the New Testament. So a lot of Bibles publish the words of Jesus in red in their Bible. And they'll say, those are the words that are most important to me. Well, these red letters in John 16 say that the black letters are just as much spoken by Jesus through his spirit as the red letters. Um, And if you have blue letters in your Bible, those are good. Uh, Green letters, also a fan. (laughs) Yellow letters, maybe a little worn out, time for a new Bible. Um, No, on this Pentecost Sunday, I just want to I just really have cherished this, thinking about this week, that that Jesus speaks through his spirit, right? That that as the Trinity works together, the spirit isn't off on his own mission, but he's speaking the words Jesus tells him to speak. That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. And that as the spirit carries along Paul and Peter and the rest of the New Testament writers, they're speaking the words of Jesus. This is the doctrine of inspiration. And Jesus says that the purpose of these is so that we will know the Father. Look at verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, And I don't say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. All right, I want you to hold something in tension with me here. Um, And I say in tension because there's going to be two things that that are a little bit difficult for us to hold at the same time. But you're smart, you're good looking, you can do it. Um, On the one hand, Jesus affirms something. He says, the only way that you come to the Father is through me. Remember that in John 14? No man comes to the Father except through me, right? Here in this passage, he says again in verse 27, because you believe in me and because you love me, that's the reason for your standing before the Father. So that's on one hand, right? On the other hand, the Father himself completely loves you. He wants a relationship with you, right? The Son does not manipulate the Father into that. You're not God's in-law, right? Some of you guys have in-laws, those people. And um, the service is online, so I gotta be careful what I say here. I love my in-laws. Um, but the only reason you're in a relationship with those people is because of who you're married to, right? You are not God's in-law, right? Jesus is not dragging you to Thanksgiving against the Father's will, right? <laughs> right? The Father wants you there. He cherishes a relationship with you, right? So this is the tension that the New Testament provides and the New Testament teaches, and it's beautiful, right? The Father completely loves you. He completely wants a relationship with you. And the only way that happens is through the Son. And those two things hold together. Now, if you drop one or the other, say you you drop the Son, you say, well, God loves me, God cares about me, and you just focus on that and you ignore the Son, you totally ignore the way that 
that God has set up for you to have a relationship with him. And consequently, in the process, don't have a relationship with him. On the other hand, if you focus so much on the son being the one to bring you there, you end up really isolated from God himself or from the father himself because you think, oh, it's only because of Jesus. God would never love me. God would never care for me. The New Testament holds those two things in tension. This has really practical effects on your spiritual life, on your prayer life, right? Uh, it affects how we, we see God, how, we, how he sees us, or how we, we understand his seeing of us, and what it means for us to, to relate to him and to connect with God. Jesus says that the Father loves you, right? He desires that you would be with him, and the only way that happens is through the Son. In verse 28, Jesus describes his own mission and what the Father has sent him to do. And in this sort of one sentence, you get really a rich understanding of how Jesus saw himself and he saw his mission. Some people call this the children's creed because in this, you get all of the doctrines of Christ in one verse. Here's, here's what it says. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going into the Father. Think, think about what Jesus is saying there, right? I have come into the world. Now, euphemistically, maybe someone would say that, but no one in the Bible gets to say that except Jesus. We're all created out of the dust of the earth, right? That's what, what Genesis says. We don't come into the world. We are from the world. Jesus is the only one who is pre-incarnate, right? He exists from eternity past. He is the son who has been sent by God, and he has come into the world. And he has not only come into the world, but he has become part of the world. That's the doctrine of incarnation. So we've got the deity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and um, in that incarnation, he is here for the benefit of all who would be part of the world. Uh, I know some of you guys are Marvel fans, right? Uh, any Marvel fans here? I'm not. I'm a pastor. I just read the Bible. But I hear, <laughs> I hear, um, no, that's a, that's a joke. Uh, I hear in the Marvel movies, at least the, the older ones, you would always have the Stanley, the creator of the whole Marvel universe, would make these Marvel Universe, would make these cameos. And you'd sort of watch along, and then there'd be a butler or a chauffeur or, you know, a waiter or whatever. And you'd be like, hey, that's Stan Lee. Hey, there he is. Um, and it would be this sort of front fourth wall where the creator becomes part of the creation. And it, it's fun, but it's superficial, right? Because, well, one, the movies aren't real. Spoiler. Um, but, but also, Stan Lee's well-being is never based on this, right? He, he's never at risk. He's never in danger. Nothing bad ever happens to him. He goes home to what I assume is billions of dollars at the end of the day. Um, his well-being is never in doubt. Jesus is the creator who has not just come to be part of a magical world, but a real world, our world. Not to fanfare, but to ridicule and ultimately to execution, Verse 28 says that he's now leaving the world, that the V-shape goes back up, and he is going to the Father. His death won't be the end of him. He doesn't cease to exist. He continues to exist even after he leaves the world. This is the doctrine of the ascension. And then he goes to make uh, intercession for us before the Father. He is the perfect second person of the Trinity, the one who has come from the Father's side, and returns to the Father's side. He is the path to the Father for us. Well, Jesus talks about himself. He, this is what he wants for us. That we know what God is like and that he is the path to him. But then in verse 29, he sort of, the, the passage turns and starts talking about what he wants for you to understand about yourself. This is a really important part because you know, we've talked a lot of theology. I've used a lot of theology words in the first half of the sermon. 
And um, it's tempting to get sort of puffed up with this. In fact, that's what happens to the disciples in verse 29. Um, look, at, look at their response in verse 29. The disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need to question you anything. And don't need anyone to question you. And this is why we believe that you have come from God. That's such an interesting sentence to me. Because I don't get what's so much more intelligible about these last few verses from the 16 chapters that came before. It's not like one was an easier reading level or different language. Like They all kind of seem equally understandable and confusing at the same time. Why are the disciples like, ah, I get it now. I get it. I was kind of hung up on this until I saw Jesus' response in verse 31, where Jesus makes very clear that he doesn't think the disciples get it at all. Look at verse 31. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. This is really interesting to me, because the disciples, if you, if you read their response in verse 29 and 30, Basically, they say, Jesus, it's your fault that we weren't getting this, right? It's your fault. You were being unclear. If you had just revealed more or taught better or helped us understand more, then there's no problem of our hearts, right? The problem is totally on your side, Jesus, not our side. Now we believe, right? It was all your fault that we weren't getting it. Now, before you give them too hard a time, haven't you said something like that, some form of that to God? Maybe not that bluntly, but you've said something maybe in your heart, at least I have, of like, God, would you just show me a sign? Would you just make clear what your will is? I'll do it. I'm sure I'll do it. I always do it, right? I always do what's right. I never skip what's right. Um, and Jesus gives them this tremendous gift where he points out, like, you say that you believe, but tonight your very belief is going to be tested and you're going to fail at it. Um, earlier in the passage, Jesus said, that uh, the way that we come before the Father is our belief and our love, right? Our belief in Jesus and our love for Jesus. And the disciples grab half of that, right? And they say, we believe. And Jesus essentially says, yes, but do you love? Do you love? Are you going to stick with me tonight? No, you're not. You're not. Why is this important for us to think about, to think about ourselves, right? Well, the disciples think that Christ is the one who could teach them, but they needed someone who's going to transform them like so many in the gospel, they, they don't see the necessity of the cross or the death that needed to occur in their sinful nature, right? That they needed a new heart, like we need a new heart apart from Christ. As uh, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Or as the New Living Translation paraphrases it, knowledge makes us feel important, but it's love that builds up the church. Well, Jesus surprisingly responds to this prediction, not with distance from them. Because, you know, whenever you call out someone's sin or someone's stuff or someone's mess, there's a tendency to, to sort of be distanced from them. But instead, Jesus moves towards them in the midst of this prediction. Look at what he says in verse 33. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, I love this verse, and this is a rich verse and an important verse just on its own. If you wanted to memorize it outside of the context of John 16, it'd be worth doing. It's, a, it's an important passage to remember as a Christian. But in context, it's even more beautiful, right? When he says, I have said these things that you may have peace, what things is he talking about? 
Is he talking about everything from the last three years? Yeah, maybe. He's talking about everything from the last three chapters? Yeah, maybe. But I think he's talking about what he just said a sentence ago. You know, remember what he said a sentence ago? You guys are all going to abandon me, right? I have told you that so that you'd have peace. That's a weird sentence. (laughs) Isn't that a weird sentence to put together? I have told you how you're going to mess up so that you would have peace. Most of us don't find a lot of peace in our shame or in our embarrassment or in our anxiety or in the things that we wish no one would find out. We feel a lot of uh, stress about those things. We, we don't want people to see them. But we don't feel peace. What a weird sentence for Jesus to say. Why would he say that? Some of us put a lot of effort, a lot of effort, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear into trying to hope that things stay together or that people don't find out these things. Yesterday, um, I was on a, a walk with my kids. I have, I have a seven-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old. I love my three little sermon illustrations. They're great. And uh, they love scootering around Cal State Long Beach. And especially they love scootering down a steep ramp at the pyramid, the, the basketball arena there. And all of COVID, they would do this. And all of COVID, I was like, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. And so I would race after them. I would try to catch them. I'd try to grab them, try to grab the handles of the scooters before they get going too fast, which they hated because they wanted to go fast. And yesterday, it's me and the three of them. And uh, uh, Beck was at work. And... Um, I was doing my best to try to keep track of all of them at the same time. And our middle son, Aaron, because it's always the middle son who gets left out, spoken as a middle son. Um, the first time I grabbed the handles as he's going down, he's like, Dad, I got it. Dad, I got it. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I just don't want you to fall. And I've been afraid of him falling for two years. And the next time, I'm like, he's four. He's mature. He's got this. <laughs> you can see where the story's going, right? He's halfway down this ramp going... I don't know, 120 miles an hour, it seems like to me. And just... uh, Hits his helmet, gratefully. Grateful it was a good helmet. His nose, his chin, his knee, whatever. And uh, he's fine. I wouldn't be using this as a sermon illustration if he wasn't. Uh, Scraped up, a little scraped up, but he's fine. And this fear that I've had for two years... Andrew actually tells me this as as we're leaving. He's like, Dad, you've been afraid of that. And it happened, and he's fine. And I was like, you're a wonderful sermon illustration. (laughs) And it's true, right? The things that we, the failures that we fear when we are seen by God in the midst of our worst, and he loves us, give us a tremendous amount of peace. Now, now I want to be clear here. This is not some whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger talk, right? That's Nietzsche. That's not Jesus, right? This is what killed Jesus makes us stronger, right? The fact that we are seen in our sin and loved, we are seen at our worst and accepted, that gives us peace, right? Not because we're good enough or we'll be fine or we'll be more resilient next time, but because Christ has taken on the worst of our sin on the cross on himself. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, right? It's not you will have trials, but you'll get through them. It's Jesus saying, but take heart, I have overcome them. I have taken them on myself on the cross. Not, don't worry, you'll get through it, you're stronger than you know. But I have overcome them by the blood on the cross. Well, um, I had a mentor who, who had a phrase that was really helpful for me, and maybe it'll be helpful for you. He would say, the kingdom is not in trouble, and you're not in trouble. The kingdom is not in trouble, and you're not in trouble. 
that no matter what happens this week, this year, what happened last year, 10 years before, the kingdom's not in trouble. Right? Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to abandon me tonight. You're all going to abandon me. But I won't be alone because the Father is with me. The kingdom is not in trouble. And you will fail in terrible ways, but have peace, for I have overcome the world. And you are not in trouble. Right? The kingdom is not in trouble, and you are not in trouble. What Jesus wants for you is to know God and to know where true peace comes from. It comes not from your being a good enough boy or girl, being religious enough, being moral enough, doing better next time, but it comes from what Christ has done on the cross. And because of that, we enjoy so many benefits as a result. We're going to take communion in a few minutes, and I'm really glad we get to have communion today because it's a reminder, a visceral reminder, that unlike what the disciples thought, the answer that we need is not more knowledge or not more not a guidebook, not a, a better law to live up to, but we need a savior. We don't need more rules on their own because what the rules we have show us is that, that what we need is for Christ to die on the cross for our sins. We're going to take communion as a reminder of that this morning. Well, I want to finish in prayer with you uh, from Psalm 103. Let's pray together. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God, that's our prayer this morning, that we would bless you, O my soul. And forget not all the ways that you have benefited us. God, we are so often caught up in our own stories, in our own fears, our own anxieties, our own pride. God, help us to see you afresh this morning in your word, to hear your spirit speak through it, and to respond with gratitude and joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.